0: All right, welcome back. We have a couple assignments due today. Well, one that's technically due today, the the homework. I know a number of you turned that in last time. If you haven't, I did say you could turn it in through today, and I'll have those graded hopefully and back to you on Tuesday. The first article review, not due till tomorrow, but if you're going to turn it in paper, give it to me today, unless you're going to drop it by my office or something tomorrow, which is fine as well. You're welcome to do that. Otherwise, you can email at any time and attach it to email tomorrow. Do make sure you don't need to send the article itself. You can, you're welcome. I have people who do that and that's perfectly fine. If you do that, that's fine. As long as I have a reference to it, if you tell me it's a certain magazine, what magazine you used, what issue and what pages, I can go find it if I need to. So you don't need to actually attach the article. You're welcome to, it doesn't hurt either way. We have the first iTunes quiz, which is up and available through Sunday. So that goes through pictures from last Friday. So there's nothing new added to it. So it'll just st- stick right where it is, and you'll take the- you can take that anytime through Sunday. You do have no time limit on that one. So, but don't take three hours on a 12-point quiz. So. Not really worth your not really worth your time to spend three hours on a on a quiz that's only worth 12 points. But you don't have a time limit, so if you want to go back and look at a picture or listen to what I said, you have time to go back and do that. But again, don't sit there searching for hours for you know one point or something. Homework three I gave you last time, and that's due next week. I have it due on I'm putting them due on Friday just because it's easier for me to keep everything consistent. So it's a due Friday. Again, if you're gonna hand it on paper make sure you get it to me on Thursday or drop it by my office, my mailbox, uh, down in 138. And then quiz three will be up and available next week. It covers a lot of chapters, chapters four through eight. Chapters four through eight is our next section. so You do not need to read these in detail. I would recommend looking and in fact you should already be able to get to those slides, should already be up and available for you, the slides that I'm going to be using. We're only going to go through a quick overview of the solar system. So we're going to take about a lecture, lecture and a half on the solar system, and those, you want to look at my slides, that's what I think is important. You don't need to sit there and read all five chapters. Yeah? Uh, I had a question about the uh, iTunes quiz. How Mm -hmm. do we get to that again? I'm sorry? How do we get to the iTunes quiz? It's on D2L the same as the other ones. Oh, it's on D2L? Yeah. Like under quizzes and everything? Under quizzes. Yep, it's right. It's, yeah, it's right, it's right there in D2L with the others. So again, chapters 4 through 8, which will either start later today or beginning of next week. We should finish chapter 3 today. And it's going to be a lot of chapters. Again, I don't want you to feel like you have to sit there and read all... You're welcome to. It's interesting material, but you don't need to know all of that for this course. I'm just going to give you a very basic overview of the solar system before we jump out and talk about the rest of the universe. Yes, sir? When should we be Next test will be. It's scheduled for the following week after this. I'm guessing it'll be either the end of that week, the Thursday, or probably the following week. It will. Be, I'll make sure we get it in before break because I don't want you to have a whole break, a whole break in there worrying about the test. So, there will be one more quiz, one more test in before break. But right now it's scheduled for the week of the week starting the twentieth. More likely, it's going to be the twenty-seventh. I'm thinking right now. Okay. Depends on how things go. Other questions? No. Okay. Do our picture of the day for today. Um, actually, it's a video, so I'm going to go ahead and start it playing. It is actually showing the aurora. So it's actually a time lapse video showing a number of showing the different the different aurora seen over Norway. How well visible is that? Let me. If I can dim one of these, maybe. Pick the right one. Oops, too much. Okay, I'll turn that back on after but get a little bit better. Better view and it's just a sort of it takes about 5 minutes to play. I don't think I'm going to play the whole thing for you here, but you can do that yourself if you want to take a look at it. But just an idea of a time-lapse video of what you'd see in if you were far enough north. Don't really get them down here that often. Hopefully with some of the activity the sun is having, we'll actually be able to see more aurora down towards this level now. They don't move anything like this fast. I mean you have big glowing coming in. This is a time lapse. You're seeing things that take, you know, that have taken minutes and you're seeing them in seconds. So you're, you're not condressing, this isn't what you'd have to wait all night to see, but it's not something you'd see instantaneously. You wouldn't see it quite glowing quite as quickly as it is there. Now the aurora, I think we've mentioned, may have mentioned them before, are ch- caused by particles from the sun that are striking the Earth's magnetic field. So they strike the Earth's magnetic field, they get funneled along it towards the poles of the Earth. So towards the magnetic poles of the Earth, the North magnetic pole and the South magnetic pole, and there they'll strike the atmosphere of the Earth. When they hit the Earth's atmosphere, they cause it to glow. They cause it to give off emission. We just talked about that. So they'll excite the atoms in the upper atmosphere and they'll cause them to glow. The atoms that are there, the oxygen, and nitrogen that are there tend to give off a greenish light. So when you, see, when you, when you get that interaction, you get this greenish glow from the, in the sky. So you get some amazing, amazing pictures with it. And again, you see them all very far north, just because that's where the North Magnetic Pole is. That's where they tend to occur the most. But when you get a very large solar flare, a large solar outburst, You can actually see them very far south. We had one last year where they were actually seeing aurora down in the southern part of the US. And apparently there was a major one, gosh this is like 150 years ago, where they actually reported aurora in Hawaii. So I mean you're getting way, that's way down. You're getting very, very close to the equator. That's very unusual. Typically you see them like this. It's all nice and cold and snowy and you've got all the snow there because you're seeing them. This is all Norway. You see a lot of them in Alaska, Canada. Maybe you got an idea of the time frame as somebody went into the house there. And, you know, northern Canada, northern US is where you typically see them. So, questions on Aurora? Yes? Um, I I think I saw a picture once of Cherry Springs State Park in Pennsylvania. That's mm-hmm. like, they have like an observatory on the top of the mountain there. I think. Okay. Um, I think they said that you can see them there occasionally. Too. Yeah, you can. How, you, you how often can. They, the the they they occur whenever the sun has a little, has an outburst. Okay. We're seeing that you haven't seen them for a few years, because the sun's been very quiet. The sun is coming towards a peak of, of activity right now, so they're going to be much more common this year, next year. They're going to be a lot more common than they have been over the past okay. past bit of time. Can you kind of predict them? Not really. You can predict only only for the few instances when you see it from the sun when you see the outburst from the sun. So you'd see it and you'd have you know, a day or so. It'll take those particles about a day or so to get here. You know, the light takes eight minutes. The particles are a lot slower than the light. So you have some, but you can't predict when that's going to occur. You know, we know they're going to be more common now because the sun is simply more active. But when is hard to, hard to say. Will it happen within a certain time of year, or can it happen no. anytime? Any time. <laughs> Any time. It's not related to the seasons at all. It's simply so activity of the sun. So it, it does happen certain times, I don't want to say of the year, I want to say certain. if you look at the solar cycle, there's certain times when it will occur. So the solar sun gets very, very active and sends out lots of flares, which is where we're getting right now. And yeah, we're going to see a lot more aurora. Five years ago, we hardly, you hardly saw any. So, a lot of pictures of the aurora right now. Yes, sir? It's green primarily. It depends on where in the atmosphere it's hitting. If you hit in certain parts of the atmosphere, and I'm trying to remember if it's higher or lower, you see a little bit of the reddish glow, too. There's actually a red that you can get, too. So there's some different colors depending on exactly where it's hitting in the atmosphere. So how how down low into the atmosphere it goes. Green is the primary one. That's where you typically see the aurora. But when you hit, I think it's very high. And I could be wrong on that. I'd have to double check it. When you hit very high, you can actually get a reddish. Glow, and you can get some purples. Just depends on the atoms that are happen to be present, and atoms and/or molecules that happen to be present at that time. So you did get to see the whole thing. Now, if you play it yourself, you can play the music. I didn't leave the music on just because I'm recording, and there's, it's you know probably somebody's copywritten music, so I didn't record that. But there's actually music that goes along along with it. So someone, I'm sorry, that was the date on there. That was this was taken. The date is 2012. This was recent. This was recent. Yeah, this was just this. I don't know if they gave me the dates or not in here. Let me see. Um, No, it does not. It was at the very end. Was it at the end of it? Did they give an actual date? Okay, yeah. 23rd through 29th of January 2012. So that was just, you know, less than a month ago. That's the nice thing about these pictures is that they're all, everything's current. It's all, a lot of it's current. You see a lot of current things. So Yeah, I missed that kind of hidden in the back there. Alright. One, One more question. Sure. You said it was because it hit the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Because it was funneled through. The magnetic field guides it to the atmosphere. It kind of focuses it. Because the particles coming from the sun, they have either positive or negative charges. And charged particles can't cross magnetic field lines very easily. So when they try to come to the earth, from the, you have the Earth here, and you have a magnetic field. You've probably seen, you know, little magnet, magnetic field lines like this. Things like that with a magnet. When the particles come from the Sun, you know, they want, just want to come straight in, but they get funneled along these magnetic field lines, and end up coming down around the North Pole, around the South Pole of magnetic poles of the Earth. So that kind of focus and that's why we see them at high latitudes. You see them in Scandinavia and you see them in Canada. You see them in Alaska. You don't typically see them in Hawaii. You know, you, don't, you know, If you want to go see an aurora, you're going to go up north. You're not going to go down, to, down towards the equator. But that's how, that's how they get focused. Anything else? Okay. I'll give you your light back here then. Give you a little more. Ugh. It's morning again. Okay. And then I got one more. Let's see. While I'm doing videos, I've got one more video quickly to show you and this one I am going to have to pause for. What this is, is this is a... We talked about the Hubble Space Telescope last time. I'm going to mention it again. This is actually a news clip video from the launch. Not actually showing the launch, but the, this was the news channel from Detroit the night before they actually launched. They did a quick news story. It's about three minutes long. It's not a real long one. And they did that. The reason I show it is that they came to my classroom in it so you actually see a clip of me. I get my about three seconds on and they show a group of my students working on a lab. They get about two seconds worth (laughs) but I can show you the clip of that. But it's interesting to see this was in 1990, April 20, well this would have been April 23rd the night because it was launched on April 24th of 1990. So I'm gonna go ahead and play you that one but this time I am gonna pause it because this is not this one I do have to pause. Okay, since we talked about the Hubble Space Telescope last time, I thought that might be an interesting one to interesting one to see here. So let me give you some light back, and we'll go back to talking about telescopes in general, which applies to the Hubble. Everything we talk about here applies to the Hubble Space Telescope and any other telescope that we're going to talk about. Now, last time we'd started, we'd just gotten this. I think I got to this slide, and that's where I cut off. But let me but we're going to start talking about the different size of the telescopes and what we can, what, what the b- big properties of them, and in fact what I'll call them is the, uh, let's see if there's one that's good, powers of a te- the powers of a telescope. So a couple different things that a, po- that a telescope does, and the first one we're going to talk about is light gathering power. That's an important one. Astronomers want to be able to see as much detail as they can. They need to be able to gather as much light as you can. So you want the biggest telescope that you can possibly get. The example shown here, this is the same object taken with two different telescopes. The only difference between the telescopes being that one telescope is twice as big as the other. And you can see that you can see that there's sort of a galaxy here, but you're losing, you don't get a lot of detail. When you get a telescope just twice as big, you're not exposing any longer, you're not taking the picture for twice as long, as anything else, same amount of time, you're gathering that much more light that you can see this much more detail, and you can start to see there's a lot of structure down in here that you can't, that is not visible in this one. It's still there, you just can't pick it up in that smaller telescope. So. What we're looking for is the bigger telescope, the larger the telescope, the more light gathering power it has. And the light gathering power depends on, or proportional to, the diameter of the telescope squared. Now we had inverse square law when we talked about gravity. This is not an inverse square law, just a direct square law. Essentially, it means that if you have a telescope that's twice as big, it doesn't just gather twice as much light; it gathers four times as much light. If you have a telescope that is ten times bigger, it's going to gather a hundred times the amount of light. So, the amount of light that you're able to gather goes up quickly as you increase the size of that telescope. So, one of the reasons—that's why one of the reasons that astronomers want very big telescopes is so that we can see, get the most light we can. Astronomers aren't usually interested. And there are astronomers who study the sun. There are astronomers who study bright things. But a lot of astronomers and a lot of the cutting edge of astronomy is looking for the very faintest objects, the very most distant galaxies, and trying to observe them. So they need to get as much light as they possibly can in order to be able to see those faint objects. You won't be able to see them with a smaller telescope. So there are objects that some telescopes can see. And others would not be able to simply because of their size. Simply because they're not big enough. Another thing they can do is put some telescopes together. Now there's Mauna Kea again. And there's the Keck telescopes I showed you last time, which are about 10 meters across. And you see one of the things they do is put a lot of telescopes together. Those are 10 meters. or two of the biggest telescopes that astronomers have. I think there's now a... I think there's now a 12 meter in an optical telescope. So I think they're actually a little bit bigger than that. But they do tend to put them together. So you notice that not only do they have the big Keck telescopes, there's a Subaru telescope, there's an infrared telescope up here, Canada-France-Hawaii telescope, Gemini North, all the telescopes put together. And again, put on Hawaii, not just because astronomers want to go to Hawaii and visit, but because it's a very good area. When you're up high on those mountains in Hawaii, it's actually very dry even though you're in the middle of the ocean. When you're up that high, it's actually very dry. That's real good for the atmosphere, real good. And the weather is clear. Doesn't do much good to put a telescope, you know, in the middle of Harrisburg when every other day is cloudy and you can't do anything with it. So it doesn't do do a lot of good. So one of the reasons that we kind of put that put that there together, put those there. Questions? Okay. Right button. And here's another one. Again, I said they don't always put them in nice places like Hawaii where you might want to go to visit, this is in Chile. Not that you wouldn't want to go visit Chile, but probably the high mountaintops in the desert of Chile aren't the most popular vacation spot in the world. But there's actually a set of four very large telescopes. And in fact it's named the VLT, the Very Large Telescope. Inventively named, yes. And it actually is four, these are about 8 meter telescopes. So they're about 8 meters across, 8 yards across, 24, 25 feet in size. So it's a big. each of these is a big mirror and they can be run as individual telescopes. So you could look at four different objects with that one mirror. Or you can actually look at the same object with all of them and combine that image together to get an even better image. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to the section on radio telescopes. You can actually combine images together from some telescopes and get an even bigger, get the effective size of even a bigger telescope by looking, having four or five telescopes look at all look at the same object at the same time. But that's another example. And that's one that's down in the desert of Chile. So again, up high on the mountains, you're getting up high above a lot of the Earth's atmosphere. You want to do that. You want to get up above a lot of the water. Water is not very, water tends to cause, well, first of all, causes clouds and things that ruin your observing. But it also absorbs a lot of light. And if you looked at the previous one, I didn't point out, whoops, Uh, no previous. There's also one that's the NASA infrared telescope. Now, if you recall, I told you you can't observe infrared radiation from the Earth, right? We talked about that a little while ago. Well, if you're high enough up in the atmosphere, you actually can. If you get up above the water, the reason we can't observe infrared is it's not really blocked out by our atmosphere, it's specifically blocked out by water. So water absorbs that. So so even though you're in Hawaii here, surrounded by water, you're high enough up in the atmosphere that you're above most of the water vapor. The water vapor and the clouds are all below you, and you can actually observe big chunks of the infrared part of the spectrum. Because there's NASA infrared, And there's a British United Kingdom infrared telescope over here. Okay, so that's the very large telescope. And again, that one's down in Chile. Now the next power of a telescope is we call resolving power. Resolving power is just the ability to distinguish two objects that are very close together. So, when you look at an object, if you're far enough away, everything blurs together, right? It all goes to a point. Everything looks like it's coming from the same spot. When you're looking at distant galaxies, distant stars, the two stars can be so close together that if you don't have what we call the resolving power, you can't separate them. You see them as one big blur. And I'm going to show you an image of that here in just a minute. Why it happens is the same thing with something we looked at before and called diffraction. When you're sending waves, which could be, here's a water wave, but it could be a light wave just as well, through a slit they tend to spread out and you get what you call diffraction, you get fringes. So you get a hole, it all blurs out and the tele- image gets a lot larger than it would be otherwise. So it spreads out the image, spreads out the light, and makes it harder to see that there might be two, five, ten, a hundred objects in there. You just can't see them all individually. And I think the next picture shows, let me see. Here's the effects of what happens with resolving power. So if we look at this, if you look at a very poor resolving power, this would be horrible. This would be a really bad, clearish night on on the Earth, this one up here. I mean, that's just a big blur. You can't see anything. You see there's a big galaxy there. There's some other objects out here, but you can't really tell what they are. And you don't see much of anything else there. It looks, makes it look in a way like it's out of focus. It's just blurred. The entire image is blurred. As you get to finer and finer resolution, can you see, as you go to B, a little bit better. You start to see maybe a few more things that you weren't quite visible in that first image. A little bit more detail in here. And as you get to even better resolution, you can see lots of stars. They were there. They're just all blurred out. If you have a very, very tiny telescope, that's all you'd be able to see. If you're looking through you know, a telescope that's only an inch or two, little tiny lens, you can see stuff, but you're not going to see a lot. If you start looking through big telescopes that are 8, 10, 12 inches in size, you're going to start to see a lot more detail. So you're going to be able to separate not only different parts of the galaxy here. You, know, you could see this bulge before, but you start to see more structure to it. And we'll see some much better pictures again later on. But the whole idea is that as the resolution improves, as you get a bigger and bigger telescope, you are able to see finer resolution. You're able to separate out stars. And sometimes you'll find that an object like this, instead of just it looks like it's one star, and as you, get the res- as you get, look at it with a bigger telescope, and a bigger telescope, and a big, no, no, it's two stars. No, nope, it's four stars. No, it's 10 stars. There could be more and more things there that you can't study with that little telescope. You can't separate them. As far as you're concerned, it's all one big blob. So when you look at the light, if you take a picture of it, or if you put your little slit of your spectroscope on it to try to observe it, all you're going to get is the light combined from all of those stars together. When you have a telescope with much higher resolution, you can split out and actually look at each individual star if you have enough, if you have enough there. Now, resolving power is proportional to, give you that one before I go here, to 1 over the diameter. So it's what we call inversely proportional to the diameter and that simply means that the bigger telescope gives you a smaller resolving power. So a larger telescope is smaller resolving power, which is good. That's better resolution. The smaller the number, the better. So you get a bigger telescope. A telescope that is twice as big has twice as good resolving power. A telescope that's ten times as big has ten times the resolving power. You can see ten times more detail. So when you go from telescopes that are you know, a few inches across, you know, the little Galileo ones, two inches, to ones that are the size of the Palomar Observatory is two hundred inches. Well, that's a hundred times bigger. You're going to get a hundred times better resolution, theoretically. Come up to the next slide in just a minute. And you're going to get 10,000 times more light gathering power. So it makes a big difference going from that little tiny telescope to a great big telescope. But in any case, the bigger you get, the better both of these powers are going to be. The better you're going to see objects, the, more better, the better faint astronomical objects you're going to be able to see. Now. Light gathering power works right. Resolving power, there's another limitation, another problem when you're stuck here on Earth. So you've got to look out through the atmosphere. And our atmosphere isn't kind to astronomers. You know? What it does, and what this diagram is showing you here, is that you've got some rays, nice straight rays, coming from the sky. When you're up above the atmosphere, you have these nice straight parallel rays from this distant star or distant galaxy coming in. But as they come through, There's all sorts of currents in that. The particles in the atmosphere are moving around. And what it does is it slowly, over time, as they come through the atmosphere, it deflects them. The more turbulent the atmosphere is, the more they get deflected and the more they get spread out. So you see where you had a nice straight wave coming in. By the time it comes out, it's kind of wobbling around a little bit by the time it gets to your telescope. That ends up ruining your resolution. And what it does is it co- creates what's called a seeing disk, which is how big this, the object appears on, on your image. And it might be something big. It could be something small. It depends on how clear the atmosphere is. But what you essentially see is that each of these individual dots, that would be an image. If you took an instantaneous picture, you know, like with your camera, click, took an instantaneous image, you'd have the star in one specific location. But astronomers are looking at faint objects. You don't, take it, you don't take a tenth of a second, a hundredth of a second exposure. You take 10 minute exposure, 15 minutes, an hour, two hours, maybe more. And when you leave that there, sometimes the star's here, sometimes it's here. Some, as it jumps around throughout this seeing disk, which will be as big depending on how bad the currents are in the atmosphere that night, it can spread out that image. So instead of seeing the star as a point, you see it as this big disk. Now, not as gigantic as that. That's showing one second of arc, which is still really small, but in terms of looking for details, often we're looking for measurements that are even smaller than that. So this is a big problem to astronomers. And as we saw on the Hubble launch that I showed you a little bit ago, it's one of the reasons we wanted to put a telescope in outer space. You know, Put the Hubble telescope in outer space, if we're up above this atmosphere, we don't see this problem. The atmosphere does not smear up the light from the, from the star, from the galaxy, from anything else anymore. We get to see it just as it is. Question, sir. Where does angular resolution come in? On the angular resolution yeah. is just—it's just separating by a- angle. Same. That's all. It's the same. it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah, angular resolution is just saying that I can see things that are one arc second apart or half an arc second. It's just saying it in terms of an angle. Is all it is. Okay. So that's the That's why you want to put Hubble telescope up there. And as we said, Hubble Telescope, they mentioned in the news clip, said it was supposed to last 15 years. Well, that would have been 2005. So it's still going. It still has an expected life. If I looked up correctly, I think it's still expected to go for another four to five years. They're hoping that it'll still be able to run through like 2015. But that'll be about the end of it because it does need to be constantly reserviced for certain things and we can no longer get to it without the shuttles. So we have no way to get to it anymore. So if there was a problem with it, then we're, we're sort of stuck. So they're hoping it'll last about another four or five years. And the replacement, the James Webb, is you know, currently online for like 2018, 2019, a few years after that. But the whole reasoning is, again, you're getting up above the atmosphere. You don't have to worry about all the light smearing it out. And you've seen, you've seen this. If you ever go out and look at the stars at night, they twinkle, right? Stars twinkle. That's the atmosphere. If you're up above the atmosphere, stars don't twinkle anymore. The only reason they twinkle, they seem to bit, gl- you know, it, is because they're coming through the atmosphere. And, they'll and you'll see that little bit of motion just because the atmosphere keeps moving that position a tiny amount. And that's what you'll see. The worst it is, and if you ever notice, if you ever look at that, and you see the stars twinkling, it's the worst probably in the summer, right? Those hot, muggy summer nights when it's clear, that's when it's the worst. The stars will look their clearest, When? When the days you don't want to go out, when it's about 10 below and it's bitterly cold, but it's perfectly crystal clear. The atmosphere is at its coldest and it's most calm. So that's the best time, you know, for astronomy point of view, you want to go out at, you know, when it's 10 below and observe the stars. From, you know, temperature point of view, you know, unless you're really, the polar bears, you know, if you're the polar bear, you want to go out then. Otherwise, you probably want to be in warm. Although nowadays astronomers do not, you know, I told you about sitting at the telescopes. They don't really sit at their telescopes anymore. They're in a nice computer room at the computer, controlling the telescope, which is out there in the cold. Wasn't the case, you know, hundred years ago. Question? Um, yeah, is that a problem that can be you know, fixed a little bit using the same process of like having multiple telescopes near each other, the way it mm. enhances the imagery? Can it help? You it can, not? to some extent. There are some other ways to do it. There are, and I'm going to talk about them in a little bit. There are some ways to account for this and. Not completely fix it, but to minimize it. There are some ways that we have to do it, but the multiple telescopes is there's another thing you can do with that, but it really doesn't change the, it doesn't change this part of the equation. And some part of the problem is they're looking at, even if they're slightly apart, they're looking at slightly different parts of the atmosphere too. So you're not looking at exactly the same atmosphere. So solutions, here we go. What do we do? So how do we get around this problem with resolution? Now here's a picture that shows a little bit more detail what I was trying to explain last time. Here's what the very, here's the telescope, maybe you'll see on Earth, very low resolution. You got an object here, an object here, looks like it's got a bulge off to this side, so there may be two objects there. What happens when you look with much higher resolution? All of a sudden it's not just these three at two or three objects, but there's, you know, many hundreds of objects in that view. So that's what astronomers are trying to see. If they're going to look at some cluster of stars, they want to be able to see the individual stars so they can understand them, not just a big blur of all the stars together. So some of the things we do to sort of get around this, get around the problem of the Earth's atmosphere. And I've shown you a couple of those images. You put the telescopes on mountaintops, especially in desert areas. So you get up up on high mountains. That's again, we have the ones in Hawaii is a big one. Chile is very big. The mountains of Chile are very, very good for having a lot of telescopes. And southern Arizona is another one. Kitt Peak near Tucson has a large number of telescopes on it. So, very dry areas, so the, the atmosphere is more calm. Up high on mountaintops, if you're getting high on a mountaintop, you're up above a lot of the atmosphere. So, you're, looking through, you're still looking through some atmosphere, but if you're standing down at sea level, if you're observing from Miami, which is at sea level, you're going to do a lot worse because you've got to look to a lot more atmosphere than if you get up you know, a, mile into the, you get a mile into the air. You're above the big, thick part of the atmosphere and you can actually see a lot better. You don't get rid of it, but you minimize it. Put telescopes into space. That's a good one, right? Put, put all the telescopes up into space. Problem is, first of all, trying to get a big telescope up into space. The Hubble telescope was about 2.4 meters across. So, it was a good sized telescope. 2.4 meters is what, about 100? Eh, you know, 60, 90, but yeah, about but 100 inch or so, close to 80, 100 inches. So, it's a good sized telescope, but it's not gigantic. I mean, compared to some of the other ones I've shown you, can you how are we going to launch a telescope that big, you know, that is many meters across? So, how are you going to launch something the size of this room into space? Right? Some of those big telescopes would have been, you know, 10, 12 meters would be, you know, comparable to the size of the room. That would be very difficult to try to launch into space. The other problem is you've got you to service them. You know, If te- something goes wrong with a telescope here on Earth, well, you can send someone out who understands telescopes and they can fix it and redo it and have it working again. Might be off for a day or two. What happens when it goes wrong out in space? Is it gone? I mean, is it shot? You know, look what happened with the, what was it, the Russian Mars probe? You know, they've had, Russians had very poor luck trying to get to Mars. They've been trying since the 60s. And they've sent probes to Mars. I don't think they've had one successful one. So you know they send it there, and it gets something happens to it on the way back, there or back. You know if something goes wrong; it loses communication. You know it could be doing a great job, but if it can't communicate back to us, we're out of luck. If we can't get back, so putting telescopes in space is great, and we've done a lot; we've learned a lot. But there's a problem with it too. You've got to be able to service the telescope. You have to be able to fix it. That's awesome. Yeah, sure. Stay with me. That's okay. <laughs> can't they just sort of have? make one big one but then break it down into pieces mm-hmm. and then send it up to like a space dock and then put it together up there? Yeah, in terms of the launching, the size, yeah, like I showed you with the Keck telescopes. The Keck telescopes, the ones in Hawaii, were made in little hexagonal cell- segments. Okay, they weren't this little. They were still big segments, but they were something you could certainly launch. So that, that would help with that part, but it doesn't help you with what happens when something goes wrong with it. Right? If something goes wrong with that telescope, you've got to get back up there to service it. Now, you know what it's like with, you know, you couldn't, if they always say, well, if something went wrong with the shuttle, what can you do? You know, there's not another shuttle standing by that can launch to go up there and help them. You know, so you're sort of, you know, you're on your own. There's not much you can do up there to get help up. You know, you can, but you can't just launch, couldn't, couldn't even at the time, you couldn't just launch a shuttle say, oh, no, we need to launch the shuttle tomorrow instead of three months from now. It wasn't going to happen. So that's another issue. So yeah, yours is correct. You are correct in that. That you could get it up in pieces, you know, sort of the way they built the space station. We couldn't have sent the space station up as one big piece, but you could have you did and did send it up in the shuttle in this segment, this segment, this segment, and put it all together. So you are correct in you are correct in that. But it doesn't get rid of the other the other big problem, which is if something goes wrong with it, then you're stuck. The big one that we do on Earth is what we call active optics. And that means that you can adjust the mirror. So You can adjust the mirror based on the temperature, based on how it's pointing. And you can actually change the shape of your mirror. So if you know what the temperature is, you can adjust and you can sort of take into account what the atmosphere is like and bend your mirror to take all the atmospheric effects out. And one way that astronomers do that is And I should have brought the picture, I should have gotten the picture of that one or looked it up for you, but there's actually telescopes where they'll send a laser beam out into the sky. So the telescope, they send a laser out into the sky to excite atoms in the upper atmosphere, sort of makes an artificial star. The astronomers can observe that artificial star along with stuff, and they know exactly the properties of that star. We may not know about the star or the galaxy in the far distance we're trying to look at, but we know exactly what we were making in that first star. When, it, when that light comes back down, we learn exactly what the atmosphere was like. And then we can take that whole, take that whole thing into account. We can do computer imaging and adjust the telescope, space, telescope um, shape instantaneously to take into account the atmosphere. So you're actually sort of skewing the shape of the telescope to match the distortion of the atmosphere and getting rid of it. So another thing that astronomers are doing and getting very good at. Because this gets rid of that problem of having to be up in space, of having you know certain telescopes in space, like infrared telescopes, need to be kept very cold. You need to have a coolant on your detectors. Well, you don't have to replace that. Uh, Telescopes have to be the mirrors have to be cleaned and resurfaced, made silver again. That you don't you know harder things that are harder to do in in space. So active optics here on on Earth is something that is helping quite a bit with being able to look at objects, being able to get to this theoretical resolving power, and sort of eliminate the effects of the atmosphere. That's the whole idea of the active active optics, putting telescopes in space or on mountaintops, is to get rid of the atmospheric effects that were kind of ruining our resolving power. One more. We'll start there yet. One more power of a telescope, I didn't put on the slides, but there is a third one. And that's the least important, to astronomers at least, is the magnifying power. So light gathering power, resolving power, magnifying power. Magnifying power is the least important one because if you don't have this, If you're not gathering and looking at the faint objects and you don't have a lot of good resolution, magnifying power doesn't do you any good. Works real nice for observing things sometimes like the planets and stuff. But if if you have a blurry image and you magnify that blurry image 100 times, you don't have a clearer image. You have a blurry image that's 100 times bigger. It doesn't help you to see anything any better. So it doesn't really, So the magnifying power doesn't, doesn't really make a big difference. It does make the image bigger. But you need a nice, clear image, highly resolved, with lots of light, before this one makes any difference. So that's when professional astronomers talk about their telescopes, or even amateurs who do it. They don't talk about the magnifying power. They talk about how much light or how much good resolution they can get. Usually the only time you see magnifying power is the little cheapy telescopes. You know, Magnifies 500 times, magnifies you know, 1,000 times. But it really doesn't unless you have a nice, good, high-quality optics and everything, magnifying a blurry thing a thousand times doesn't, doesn't do you a lot of good. So that's why you may see that. I can't remember if the textbook does go through that one or not, but I want to make sure I covered all three, all three for you there. Alright, so that was, that's basics on telescopes. I did them from sort of an optical perspective. There are all sorts of other things. Remember, there's an entire electromagnetic spectrum, so there's a lot more that we can see. And the first one that we're going to talk about in great detail, and then I'll skim through kind of the other different types that we can see, is radio astronomy. Radio telescopes are just like a big reflecting telescope. So, you've seen something that looks like a great big satellite dish. And you can see one example right here, shown. And that should be, without seeing it, that looks like the Green Bank Telescope. It's about a hundred meter telescope. So, big telescope, right? Radio telescopes are extremely large and but they look a lot like a reflecting telescope. It's the same type of thing got a mirror that focuses not visible light but focuses radio waves. They all use the, prime, they use the prime focus. So everything goes back up, is reflected off of them, and then goes back up to a receiver up here that detects the radio radiation. So as the sketch goes here, everything comes in, bounces off, and comes back up to the focus, which is over here, and then wires to take it down to the control room down below. So nobody actually observes from, observes from up there on a radio telescope. The nice thing about radio telescopes is that they don't, it doesn't ma- you know, the, the surface doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be perfectly smooth. Optical telescope, and I made a big deal about that, so the last time we talked about the mirror and the lens, you had to make that size very smooth optically. Well it turns out you only have to make it smooth so that it looks smooth to that radiation. Now optical wavelengths are very tiny nanometers, 10, you know, 10 to the minus 9th meters. They're incredibly small. So you have to make a mirror surface that looks smooth to something that tiny. Radio astronomers are looking at much longer wavelengths. Uh, A typical radio telescope might look at things that are about 2 centimeters. 4 centimeters, 6 centimeters, 10 centimeters, 20 centimeters, up to a meter or so. Much longer. When something is 2 centimeters, the wavelengths are 2 centimeters, a little ding of a millimeter on the telescope doesn't make any difference. As far as it's concerned, it's perfectly smooth. And you may have noticed that you know, if you have a satellite dish, right, in one of those little dishes, they can get snow in them, they can get a few leaves in them, picture, your picture and signal still come through just fine, right? Unless they're completely clogged, you know, completely ruined, your signal comes through just fine. It's because the telescope still looks smooth, even to that. So you can actually make them much larger. And as I said, this one, if I'm remembering it correctly, and that sure looks like it, that would be about 100 meters across, 100 meters. About 100 yards, so about a football field in size. So that's a, pretty, that's a tremendous telescope that's being moved there. That's not like one of the little, you know, direct TV satellite dishes, one of the little ones. That's a, that's a monster. That's a, a, football, a football field across, in both directions. But they can be made very large. So that's an important thing. And we're, we need to make them very large for some other reasons that we'll talk about here in a minute. Here's the largest one. That was 100 meters. This one's actually 300 meters. So if you think about that, you know, you can put three football fields across each way in there. One, two, three, one, two. That's incredibly large telescope. That's the biggest, largest radio telescope that's ever been created. 300 meters across. So that would be, what, the third of a kilometer? So you're talking you know, not, that's big, that's big. Um, what it is though, if you look at it, there's no way to steer it. You couldn't build, something, couldn't build something that big that could be actually steered. So it was actually built into the valley of some mountains in Puerto Rico. So in Arecibo, Puerto Rico, they hollowed out the area, this little valley area, and actually built the telescope into that. So it can only look pretty much straight up overhead. It's got a little bit of a range, but you can't steer it. So if we want to look at something in Puerto Rico that's towards the northern horizon or the southern horizon, no luck, can't do it. There's no way to, you can't turn. You'd have to turn the whole Earth. It's built right into the Earth. But you have a telescope, a single telescope that is that big, and can see therefore that much better resolving power, can see that much finer detail, and can gather that much more light. Again, these apply to any telescope. It doesn't have to be an optical telescope. Well, that's where I sort of introduced them. They'll apply to a radio telescope just as well. The couple other inserts there are showing the little detector. So this is the detector that kind of hangs over the center to detect the radiation. And then just to give you sort of an idea of the scale, there's a small section of it with a person walking on it. And you can see you know, they've got almost like the snowshoes on. I don't know if you can tell. He's got these big discs on his feet on it. That's just so you don't dent the... You know, I said you don't want to dent it. You don't want to dent it. You know, a little imperfections don't make a big difference, but a footprint in it. You know, you start dending it with a foot size, you're talking about the same wavelengths of the radio waves you're looking at. That all of a sudden, it's no longer smooth. So you kind of spread your, spread your weight out like you do with a snowshoe so it doesn't put so much weight on a specific area of it. So as they're going and working on it there. But that's the largest radio telescope, largest single radio dish radio telescope. When was it, when was it made? Arecibo's been around for a long time. That's been, I would say, 70s. I'm guessing 70s. I could be wrong on that. I did not look up it. Been, it's been around for quite a while now. But one of the other things, one thing I didn't give you, is that the resolving power is also proportional to the wavelength. So it's proportional to the wavelength and it's inversely proportional to the diameter. Remember, we want this number to be as small as we can. So big telescope makes it small. So 300 meter telescope gives you a very, very small resolution, a very good resolution, right? But it also depends on the wavelength. If you're looking at visible light, we're talking about 400 nanometers, 500 nanometers. When you're talking about, wavelength, about radio light, you're talking about centimeters. That's a lot long, many times larger wavelength, and it completely overwhelms the size of the telescope. So radio telescopes get very poor resolution. Even a 300 meter telescope does not begin to compare to the resolution of a you know, regular decent sized optical telescope. It won't even compare. So that's the big disadvantage of it. And we're going to see how radio astronomers get around that. There there are other ways to sort of make even bigger telescopes indirectly that we can get around that angular resolution problem. But that was the biggest problem for the longest time when radio astronomy was discovered. You know, radio telescopes were invented in the 30s and really took off in the 50s. And the problem was the radio astronomer would be able to point and say, there's an an radio source there. But in that area that he was pointing to, that he could resolve with his radio telescope, the optical astronomer could probably see 50 different objects. You couldn't tell which, which one it was really associated with. So it was a problem in order to be able to pinpoint and compare things between the optical and the radio. Now that said, we do have a lot of advantages to radio astronomy. has a lot of advantages over optical astronomy. First of all, you can observe 24 hours a day. Observe during the day, right? Satellite dishes work during the day. Radio waves come right through the atmosphere. The sun does emit radio waves. You can't look close to the sun. But the sky doesn't reflect all the radio waves and scatter them and make them come from all directions the way it does with optical light. So while the sun is bright in radio waves, it's only bright when you're looking right at the sun. If you're looking away from the sun, so if the sun's there but I'm looking over here, I'm just fine. Doesn't work optically. Because the sky glows so much. The, the sun has illuminated the sky so well. But in the radio, it's just as dark as nighttime there. Doesn't matter. So you can actually observe 24 hours a day. Clouds don't matter. You can observe through the clouds. Radio waves come right through the clouds. Lots of them that we observe. Um, rain, snow, doesn't really matter if it's raining or snowing at all. What with one exception, didn't mention there, thunderstorms do cause an issue. So you do have you do have a problem if you get a thunderstorm, right? Think about lightning, electrical discharge in the atmosphere is going to interfere with the radio signal. So if you get a real heavy rain, you get real thunderstorms. That does that's about the only time the radio astronomers can't observe. So otherwise, they can observe 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So you've got a big big advantage, big advantage there. The other advantage is that you're looking at, and again, this was the first one. This was the first other. Wavelength other than optical, that we looked at. And it was the first time we could actually see the universe in a different light. And we see here, example picture here, this is actually a galaxy. This is called Centaurus A. So there's a galaxy here. It's actually an elliptical galaxy. We'll talk about it again. We'll get to the details of those later in the class when we get to galaxies. But there's an elliptical galaxy here, and this whitish part is the optical image. So if you look at it optically, you see this big white galaxy with this big dust lane through the center. That's what you see visibly. That's what astronomers saw for, you know, since the invention of the telescope until radio telescopes were invented, so for hundreds of years. That was all you saw. If you look at it just in radio, ignore that part, all you see is this little bit here and this jet going out this way and another jet going out this way. You don't see the rest of this galaxy in the radio. It's not very bright. The radio emission is all coming down here. And in terms of some jets, apparently, that are shooting out of the galaxy, this direction and this direction. You see two completely different things. Still the same galaxy, but looking at it and understanding what's going on optically can tell us one thing. Understanding what's going on radio tells us something else. And together, you can put everything together and get a more complete understanding, perhaps, of what's going on in this galaxy. It is a very unusual galaxy. It's what's called an active galaxy. So it's much more energetic than a typical galaxy. And likely what's going on here is this is these jets trace down to the center of the galaxy and where there would be a massive black hole. And that massive black hole spirals in material and actually not only spirals it in but shoots out material in sort of opposing jets. Not from the black hole. Once you're in a black hole, you're stuck. But from, from outside of the black hole, it can actually shoot out material. And as material spirals in, it can do a lot of energy, it produce a lot of energy and can actually shoot material back outwards. And that's what we believe we're seeing in something like this. But again, visibly you'd never see it. You don't see this in the visible. If I take you know, the deepest visible exposure, I won't see anything here. I will only see this part. I won't see these whole big radio jets that come out. So the whole idea, again, we've gotten completely different information. It's a completely different way of looking at the, the objects. And we learn more about them that way. And as we can do it now, we can look at things in not just the optical and the radio, but we can look at them in the infrared, in the ultraviolet, in x-rays, in gamma rays, and we can learn even more about different objects. Okay. Now, I said resolution was horrible for radio telescopes. Again, and it was because this. Not only does the resolving power depend on how big the telescope is, but it depends on the wavelength you're observing. The longer the wavelength you're observing at, the worse the resolution. So when radio astronomers are looking at wavelengths that are 10 or 12 centimeters in length, your resolution's horrible. But what we can do is take telescopes that are separated. This is a picture. This is called the VLA, Very Large Array of telescopes. There's a set of 27 telescopes there in New Mexico. And you see there's sets, if you see the inset here, there's sort of a railroad tracks. They're actually movable too. So they can be moved onto the railroad tracks and shifted. And there's actually, they use four different configurations. You can have them very widely separated or relatively close together depending on what you're trying trying to look at. What happens is that when you put, when you have all those telescopes looking at the same object at the same time, you can combine those signals electronically, as though you had one telescope as big as the entire array. So instead of being a telescope, and these are very small telescopes; these are not big. These are about 25 meters across. I think they're about 85, 80, 85, or 90 feet across. So they're they're good-sized telescopes. They're not teeny tiny little things, but they're not gigantic ones. Like I'm not talking hundreds of meters. But when you put each of those together, if you separate them by many kilometers, you can get the resolution. Your best resolution on it will depend on how far apart your two furthest telescopes are. So if you can put those telescopes a kilometer apart, that's effectively a telescope that is a kilometer in size. If you can put them 10 kilometers apart, you have a 10 kilometer size telescope. Only in terms of resolution. It only affects the resolution. It won't, help you get, it won't gather the light of that telescope. But it will give you the resolution of that telescope, whatever the two most widely separated telescopes are. It won't help you with the light gathering power, because if you think of this as a big mirror, can you see there's lots of gaps in it? You know? you're, getting, you're getting their energy coming here and here and here, but you're not getting whatever energy would have been striking all these other spots that wouldn't have been part of it. So there's big, it's like big holes in your telescope. So you have this big telescope that may be kilometers apart, but it's got big holes in it. The resolving power only depends on the two widest edges of the telescope. So you can get a great resolution with radio telescopes. And in fact, the VLA actually gives you resolution that is very comparable to typical optical telescopes. That's actually why they designed it that way, because it would actually give you that type of resolution. And it would be comparable to the optical telescopes. Now, what interferometry does, this is just a quick sketch of it. Um, you can go through all the fancy mathematics if you want. We're not going to, but what it does is, essentially, it looks at two different telescopes. And as you're looking at different, par- different parts, you'll see here part of a wave coming in, and here part of a wave coming in. Okay, these are out of step. The, p- the trough here coincides with the peak, and the two are, the are canceling there. At this situation, a telescope slightly further away is going to get slightly different. They're actually going to add together. When you do that for a bunch of telescopes and you analyze it, you can actually use that relationship between those waves and you can use it to get back to the whole image. You can reproduce the entire image as though all of these telescopes were connected together when they made the observations. So essentially you're just combining all the observations from the telescopes. This is how it works. It looks at the phases. That remember they're all radio waves coming in. Some of them will add together or can't will add together and be nice and be stronger. Some of them will be weaker. Some will be stages in between that. When you look at that for all 27 different telescopes, you can can analyze that by computer and then reproduce the image that you would get from the entire if the entire thing were one great big telescope. And then I think, do I have and you can get a radio image whose resolution is very similar to the optical. Here's a galaxy in the radio. OK We see some emission from it. Here's the galaxy in the optical. You're getting right about the same resolution. You can see about the same details in the spiral arms, in this towards the center, in this companion galaxy. You can get about the same amount of detail. Now things aren't going to look exactly the same because some objects you know, what do we have over here? There's something very strong in the radio here. But where is it here? Does it even exist? Or is it just off the screen? There's nothing there. Some objects you can match up exactly. You know, Here's this little galaxy, but this isn't very bright in the radio as compared to what it looks like in the optical. So we can still get a good understanding, but now we can actually match objects up better. You know, If we're seeing something in here that is very strong in the radio, we can go look to see if there's an optical counterpart to it. We can see if there's something there. Now, actually, radio astronomers can do even better. Now, I showed you the VLA, Very Large Array, and that does about equivalent to optical. Whoops! Did I get? Nope. Okay, I got to go back. I didn't put that one in there. You can actually go back. I'll leave that one up you can actually go and do bigger things. Because remember I said it just depends on how far apart your telescopes are. So the VLA is down in the desert in New Mexico. You, know, kilometer. you can do many kilometers at their largest. You could do it bigger. What would you do if you did one telescope in, over towards Boston and one in San Francisco? Observe the same object, you now have a telescope the size of the United States. You can get even better resolution. You can actually pinpoint things even more finely here, and that's not the limit, right? What would our limit be? Size of the Earth. So if you had one object on one end of this, one end of the Earth, and one at the other, you know, two sides, completely opposed on the sides of the Earth, you could then be, look at something that's the diameter of the Earth. You could have a telescope the size of the Earth. Can you just throw these, out of suggestions? these are done. No, these are done. Can you give us an example. Hmm example of I mean there's there there is uh, in the United States there's something called the VLBI which is very long baseline interferometry it's a set of I think 20 telescopes that are scattered around the United States that do the same thing the VLA does and observe objects there are also now they're not there's not a dedicated one that I know of internationally but they do, do use telescopes England will use telescopes Australia the US and you can combine whenever something is up above the horizon you can have you know 10 different telescopes looking at it You can combine all that signal together, and you can get a telescope the size of the Earth. What are they looking at? Um, Usually extragalactic objects, distant galaxies, and trying to get the resolution to look in. Usually a lot of what they're looking into is trying to find out there's like a black hole at the center of these galaxies. And they're trying to pinpoint and look even more finely into that detail and get that detail on it. Could you make it bigger? You could even make it bigger. Now, 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 I'm, now I'm getting hypothetical. That, that's what we've done. You know, We've got them about the size of the Earth because we have te- radio telescopes all over the Earth. Hypothetically, you could also put something in orbit. You could put a little radio telescope in orbit. It wouldn't help you much because if you're already talking about the diameter of the Earth and you put something a few hundred miles into orbit, you're not getting all that much bigger. The next big thing you could probably do is put you know, a radio telescope on the Moon you know put mount a radio telescope on the moon and combined its signal with we get the same issue we had with telescopes in space you know what happens if there's damage to that ra- that telescope on the moon well it's out of order until you can send an astronaut to the moon to fix it and that's not going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month it's probably it's a year year many year process to, to do it well, i know you probably go over this more in another mm-hmm. class, but have what's the deal with, with the US and the moon like why have not we? with with the US and why haven't we gone back? There's so many theories and, you know... You mean why haven't we gone back to the moon? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Or? I, pro- probably monetary reasons. You could certainly do it. I mean, if we could go to the moon in the 1970s, could we go to the moon now? Probably very easily. I mean, more you know, air. probably be able to do a lot more, be able to understand a lot more. You know, there's, I showed you the one image from the moon, right? I showed you Apollo 15, that one dropping the hammer and the feather. You saw the quality of it. You know, that was the quality at the time. You know, that looks horrible compared to, you know, HDTV right now, right? What would the pictures from the moon look like right now when they're taking them? Or when we look at some of the stuff of the other planets when we've sent stuff there. Often it's a monetary thing that they don't, you don't want to spend the money on. You know, we've been to the moon. What's the big deal? We still don't understand the moon. You know, let alone understand all the other planets. We still don't understand the moon. It's so weird that we have all this technology and we're mm-hmm. focusing on distant galaxies when we could sort of yeah. divert that attention to our own galaxy. Yeah, you could, but it just dep- depends on what the astronomers are in. and happen to be interested in. I mean, that's, you know, where their interest is, and is, you know, and understanding other galaxies does help us with our own. One of the rude reasons to study other planets helps us learn about the Earth. You know, we see we have one example when you look at something on the Earth. If all we study is the Earth, we only have one example. So we understand, okay, how things look like they're working on the Earth. Is that how they always work? Does, does the same thing happen on Mars? Does the same thing happen on Venus? Does the same thing happen on Neptune? You know, when we look at all the other, you can put it all together. When you can look at 50 different planets, if you know you have planets that we've spotted in other solar, in other solar systems, you can put 50 of them together. You can get a better understanding. As, you know, are we unusual? Does something unusual happen on the Earth? You know, plate tectonics is unusual in the solar system. Whether it exists elsewhere, we don't know yet. But it's not. Doesn't seem to exist elsewhere in our solar system yet. So are we you unu- Is something unusual there, or are there other things that happen in terms of atmosphere is, is it common? So under look, looking at all the other planets, similarly happened. And say, similar studying other galaxies would help us to understand our own galaxy. Kind of hard to look at our galaxy from inside it. You know, our galaxy is very hard to study, and we'll see that when we get to be towards you know April. But when we get to talking about our galaxy, it's very hard to study our galaxy. You know, it's kind of like what does this building look like? You can never leave this room. What does this building look like? Hard to to tell, right? But I can look at other galaxies. I could look out and maybe see other buildings and say, well, maybe it's like that one. And maybe I can get some clues. And you can get some clues to sort of piece together what we do under what we can learn about closer to home. Did I see another question? No? Okay. Okay. So we can do that. We can make bigger and bigger telescopes. We can do it with visible light. Astronomers are getting better and better at this now. You can actually do it with visible light, but because the wavelengths are so much shorter, it's very hard to do. So you can't separate, as far as I know, they have not been able to get to the point where you can get like telescopes, vis- optical telescopes scattered across the country and combine them together. You can get some that are very close together and actually combine their signals and get and do the same type of interferometry. For a long time, it was only radio telescopes. Now we're getting to the point where technology and computers have increased enough that we can actually do it optically as well. But the wavelengths are so much shorter, it's hard to get them combined accurately and get all the, do all the analysis that's necessary. Now beyond those two, we had radio and optical. Those are the two, consider the two primary ones. We're going to look briefly through some of the others and see what I can get through here in the few minutes. Infrared radiation. Infrared is good for looking at things when there's a lot of dust. So this is an example. These two pictures show the same thing. So probably match up some of the stars. There's a couple stars there and a couple there. There's the same grouping of stars. But you don't see them very well. Why? Because there's a big shroud of dust as part of this nebula. The dust blocks out visible light it absorbs it. So the visible light doesn't get out very well. Some of it does, but not all of it. So you can look through, but if you look at it in the infrared, longer wavelengths will actually penetrate. So longer wavelengths get out much easier, so you can see in this image it looks like you've just cleaned up the image. Right? You can sort of some of these stars seem to stand out a little bit more and you're essentially looking through the dust. So when we try to study things like star formation, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, how stars form, we don't see it, we don't learn a lot about them by looking in visible light. We can't see into the depths of where the stars are forming with visible light. It's all blocked out. There's too much dust, much more so than we see here. It can be completely dark. But when you look with an optical te- with an infrared telescope, you can actually see into that stellar nursery. So you can actually get in there. Nice thing about infrared telescopes is that they can use mirrors and lenses just like an optical telescope. They're the same, you know, a regular mirror will reflect infrared radiation just like it reflects optical radiation. So the mirrors and lenses are not really all that different, you know, as compared to the radio telescopes, which were a little similar shape but different in in style. The difficulty with infrared is that you have to keep the detector very cold. Why? Because infrared radiation... What are you emitting right now, right? We're all emitting infrared radiation. So room temperature, if you look in the infrared, is incredibly bright. Because everything is emitting. The walls, everything that's warm, is emitting infrared radiation. So your detector would be warm. It would be emitting infrared radiation. It would be like putting little lights on your CCD or on your photographic film You know, illuminating it while you're taking a picture. It would blur out everything. You wouldn't see anything. So a lot of the infrared detectors have to be kept incredibly cold. They lower them down with liquid nitrogen to keep them cold so that they can actually observe, to use them to observe. We also put infrared telescopes in space, on balloons, anything we can do to get them up high in the atmosphere. So we want to get them above most of the water in the atmosphere. Remember, water was what is absorbing the infrared light. So, in space, there have been infrared telescopes in space. There have been infrared telescopes on balloons, on airplanes. Anything you can do to get them up high in the atmosphere, you can do infrared astronomy. So you're not limited to the ground. Now, of course, you're limited in terms of size. You know, how big of a telescope can you launch on a balloon? You're not going to be able to launch something that's room size on a balloon. And again, same thing with getting it into space. You can either get it in pieces, as we talked about, or you'd have to put one element together. Here's a couple examples in ultraviolet. Ultraviolet is also similar in to, to infrared, that the telescope types are about the same. But looking at, you look at different types of objects. What we look at when we see these different, when we look at different Astronomies, different wavelengths of light, we study, different, uh, we study different types of objects. Here's a supernova remnant, remnant of an exploded star. Very high energy. Ultraviolet radiation is much higher energy than visible. So we think, see things where there's a lot more energy going on. Here's a supernova remnant and a galaxy, M81. OK, I remember which one it was. The galaxy, when we look at it in ultraviolet, we see the spiral arms are very, very bright. Spiral arms are enhanced in it. That's because the spiral arms are made up of a lot of very young stars that are very hot and actually emit a lot of ultraviolet light, much more so than our sun does. So that actually illuminates that part. So we're looking at different things. We can study different parts of the galaxy and different segments of it, different components of it, just by looking at different wavelengths. Infrared helps us with the stars as they're being born. And ultraviolet helps us with the very young stars. Here, ultraviolet can also help us with an exploded star. So we can see the remnants of a shock wave where a star had exploded you know, thousands, millions of years ago. X-rays and gamma rays are different. We'll see how close we get to the end. I've got about a minute left. Um, X-rays and gamma rays are a little different. You can't reflect an X-ray. Okay? You know, X-rays aren't going to bounce off a mirror the way the the way, that light do, the way that light does. Visible light, ultraviolet, infrared, they were all the same. Radio waves. So you can't just bounce them off a mirror. X-rays will reflect if you go at a very, very low angle. So if you kind of skip them off the mirror, they'll actually be able to focus. And they design X-ray telescopes with this type of design, so that you kind of bounce them off a mirror, and then bounce them off a mirror, and bring them to a focus. And this is an example of a set of cylindrical mirrors that would then be used to focus X-rays. So you could focus x-rays that. You can't just bounce them off. I can't just build a big x-ray mirror and bounce things off of it. X-rays will just penetrate right through it. So you actually need a different style of mirror to be able to to do that. And then I think, and there's an x-ray image. That's uh, Cassiopeia A is a big supernova remnant. Again, supernova remnants, very, very energetic. So lots of energy and very strong in the x-rays. So we'll see a lot of bright X-rays from, from those kind of things. And I'm about out there. I didn't quite make it through the whole thing. We've got to like, I All I have to do is talk about gamma ray astronomy. which will take me a couple of minutes next time to finish up. Questions, sir? Sure. Yep. Oop, if I can. Right there. So they will that, But I'll come back and finish up. I'll remind you of the X-rays. And then I'll go through gamma ray next time before we go on and start about the planets. So. If you haven't turned in articles or homework, make sure I get those by, well, homework today, articles tomorrow. And otherwise, I will see everybody next week.